Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Good, have some good stuff this week, another two-part week. Tonight, we're dropping the World Series podcast. We're going to be talking about the World Series with Joe Sheehan, the great baseball writer who has his own newsletter. We're going to talk to Joe about the World Series, a little bit about the Yankees and Mets, too. That's coming up in just a bit. Make sure you're locked into the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill. I'm going to talk about the latest disaster with the New York Jets, and boy, when you think you can't hit rock bottom with the Jets, they find a way to go lower. We'll get to that at the end of the show. But our opening tip is up next. We're going to talk about the World Series. My thoughts, how we got here, and my opinion on the series. Where we got to Joe right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here getting ready for the World Series today. Recording on Tuesday afternoon, World Series tonight, Game 1, Dodgers-Rays. And happy to say that for the second year in a row, I have managed to predict the World Series matchup on this podcast. Last year, I called the Astros and the Nationals. Not the Nationals winning, but this year back in Jan- back in. uh I want to say July. Yeah, it's July. Because how crazy baseball is. It did not start on time in April. We started in July. But back then, I had Dodgers Rays. Also, Will Schneiderhand had Dodgers Rays. But we got it right. Woohoo! And the Rays back in the World Series the first time since 2008. They're a lot of fun. I love watching the Rays. Their analytics team's the best in baseball. They gave us a scare there. They've got 3-0 on the Astros. Astros came all the way back for Game 7. But the Rays held on to win. They do a great job of finding guys that the other teams ignore. Look at some of the guys that have been stars for them this year. Randy Arozarena, you know him, Yankee fans. He burned you guys in the playoffs. The throw-in piece in a trade that brought Jose Martinez to Tampa Bay. And that sent Matthew Lieber Tor of a top pitching prospect to the Cardinals. He had 382 with seven homers, 10 RBIs in the postseason. G-Man Choi. First base in the Garrett Cole killer. They got him from the Milwaukee Brewers in 2018 for Brad Miller. Making big plays, hitting big home runs. A very big heart and soul guy of this team. Uh, Mike Brousseau. The guy who hit the series winning homework against the Yankees. And got revenge on a role as Chapman who threw his head early in the year. He went undrafted in 2016. All 30 teams had a chance to draft this kid. They did not. Tampa signs an undrafted free agent. He's hitting series-winning homers in the American League Division Series. Peter Fairbanks does nothing for the Rangers for a long time. Tampa gets her Nick Solak. Nice pumping 100-mile-per-hour fastballs throughout the playoffs. Nick Anderson. Good job for the Marlins. Rays get him a, a deadline deal. Now he's Andrew Miller. This team has so much pitching, it's scary. We saw, again, the 3-0 league gets blown. They're playing in Game 7, but they have one of the best postseason pitchers in Charlie Morton. 
Charlie Morton, we've seen him against the Yankees a couple of years back. Just flipping those curveballs in there in big spots. And he did again to the Astros. The Rays move on, and they are the truly the epitome of 2020 baseball Tampa Bay. They struck out a lot. They homer a lot. But this team also plays tremendous defense. They shift more than anybody in baseball. They use the great effect. They use their pitching very wisely. They have an army of guys who throw hard, who throw strikes. They're not afraid of matching up with anybody. They use their roster to the fullest. They are doing very well. NLCS, on the other hand, interesting series, the Braves and the Dodgers. The Dodgers come back to win. They were down 3-1. They win the last three games of the series. Game 7 was a very interesting situation for Atlanta. They were up early. They had a chance to really blow this game open, but in the third inning, they have a bad base running sequence where they basically run into two outs. When they have second and third with one with nobody out, they have a guy get caught going from third to home. Then the throw back to third is also out. Two big outs. And that really changed this game. Because the Braves could have blown this game wide open. Instead, they're only up 3-2. Kike Hernandez hits the tying home pinch at homer in the sixth. And Cody Bellinger hits an absolute moonshot to win the game in the seventh. Dave Roberts, smart man. Let's Julio Urias, who came in, was dominating the Braves, finishes off. And this is just a credit to this Dodger team because the Dodgers have been great all season. They face real adversity going down 3-1 here. They come back strong. They hit homers. They play through defense. Mookie Betts proving why he's still one of the best players in baseball, making a couple incredible catches in the series. Big clutch performances. And tough break for the Braves, who obviously, if Mike Soroka is healthy, this is a different series because he was obviously their best pitcher. But this team's still going to be a big factor in the end, at least for years. That's a big problem if you're a Mets fan because they have all this young talent. Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Freddie Freeman's still a Met killer. If they can retain Marcelo Zuna, who had a huge postseason, that would be great for them. Travis Darno, we know what he's become since he left the Mets. And if they can get pitching, Max Fried's good. Ian Harrison had a good postseason. If they can get arms behind Soroka and Freed, they could be very, very scary for a long time. But it's going to be a fun World Series. I cannot wait to see what happens. Let's talk about it with Joe Sheehan right after this call from TBS. Zarena has destroyed fastballs, and he hits that one into right center field. That ball is well hit, and Randy Rosarena does it again. What a ride he is on. Randy Rosarena with a two-run home run. And the Rays score first in Game 7. Ron, this was a pitch that I think McCullers was trying to come in on and pulled this one. Almost the same pitch he threw in the pitch before. The other one, he was a little bit late, fouled it off. This one, completely on time. And right when he hit it, you saw him look at the dugout of the Rays. He knew this ball was gone. All right, I am back here. We are talking World Series today with the great Joe Sheehan, a, a baseball contributor for Spirits Illustrated. He also has his own newsletter talking all about baseball. Joe, welcome. How are you? Good, myself. Doing pretty good. And I have to say, considering all of the angst that we had over the postseason with the expanded playoffs, I think it did work out pretty nice. We got the two best teams in the World Series. Yeah, that's not always going to happen in a format like this. But baseball caught some breaks along the way. Uh, certainly with these two teams, it's not just like 2014 or so where you kind of, eh, you know, they're good teams and maybe they're the best team. 
these were clearly the two best teams in baseball all season. And as we saw all October, they're great in all aspects of the game. Yeah, I do think so, too. And when you look at the matchup, what's the first thing that jumps at you between the Rays Dyers in terms of, like, what's something that really attracts your interest? Well, the pitching depth is really incredible. I mean, this is a year where the pit teams use their, their pitches very strangely, obviously, with the expanded rosters for uh, the entire season. You know, a lot of teams couldn't fill out a 13- or a 14-man pitching staff. And frankly, I hope we never have 14-man pitching, 14 pitching staffs again. But the Rays and Dodgers are two teams that actually have enough good pitchers to go that deep. You know, we saw the depth of the Rays a bullpen a lot over the last couple of weeks with their use of guys like Peter Fairbanks and Nick Anderson, pitchers who are known to steam heads, but maybe not as known around, you know, to, to the casual fan. And of course the Dodgers, you know, you look at those young arms, uh, Dustin May, Julio Arias, who closed out game seven, Tony Gonsolin. These are all guys that have come through their system been developed by the Dodgers and are now having an impact at the major league level. So that pitching depth, I think is there to find this series. I do too. And one thing that does jump out at me that's interesting in the series, obviously the neutral site aspect, whereas I know weather wouldn't have been an issue if we were playing in Los Angeles and Tampa Bay, but like, what do you think the impact of playing at a globe like park will have on these two teams? Well, it's, I mean, it's lit by candles and it has like <laughs> double gravity of earth. So uh, I, I think it's been interesting watching. I mean, obviously I, yeah, I watched the Rangers during the season. It's a new ballpark. Uh, it was certainly a big change for the Rangers going from Globe by Field, which was a good hitter's park. It was outside. It had jet stream out to right field. And now going to a domed park, and they pretty much played with the roof uh, closed most of the season. Um, and it was a totally different environment for Rangers baseball. And we've seen in this series, you can get a ball out of this park, but you really have to get a hold of it. Uh, it just doesn't just, – well, this doesn't fly very well in this park. It's got a decent-sized outfield, but really it's about the way the ball flies. Uh, I think this affects both teams. Both teams are very reliant. I think the long ball to score. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the Rays' defense adapts to a park they haven't played in yet. You know, the Dodgers have gotten to play in Arlington the last week or so. The Rays have not played with the way the schedule was this year. You know, the uh, the didn't play any American League West games, so they'll be new to this park. And we haven't. But that is not a very common thing now. Most players have some experience, even in a, you know the cross league park that they still play in. So. Uh, we'll see how that affects them, particularly in the early first couple of games of the series. Yeah, I, the Rays definitely an interesting story to me just because of the way they sort of, I think, obviously, the money ball revolution, analytics, and all that. They feel like the Rays are become the post children for that. And one thing I think is interesting with them is just the way they sort of maximize the utility of their roster in terms of every guy has a role. It's not like, let's say, the Yankees, where if you, Tyler Wade is playing three times a week, you're in trouble. The Rays can really throw out anybody in there and sort of get something out of them. How do you think about? the way the Rays have sort of utilized that roster is something you think that the rest of the league will start adapting in the future. Again, you have to be careful to port things from 2020 baseball to other years because you're not going to have the size of the roster. Baseball was supposed to go to 26-man rosters this year. They played with 28. That makes a significant difference. Uh, I, there was a really good piece by Mike Petriello at MLB.com talking about all of the different looks that the Rays pitchers can give you. Talking about arm angles and repertoires and different velocities. Uh, I think that's going to be something they're going to look to attack the Dodgers with. You go back to the first three series in the playoffs. The Rays have faced these right-handed heavy teams. The, the, uh, they faced 74% right-handed hitters, the Jays, the Astros, and the Yankees. Well, the Dodgers now, the Dodgers get about half their plate appearances during this run from lefty batters. So it's not just going to be as simple as shoving Nick Anderson and Diego Castillo and uh, Pete Fairbanks, these power right-handers they have at the Dodgers. 
Kevin Cash is going to have to do a little more, more a little bit more matchups. He's going to have to rely on the left-handed pitchers in his bullpen that he really hasn't used at all in this playoff run. So that I think is one of the big challenges. How do the Rays play against a team that has much better balance than they faced so far? Yeah, I do think people do forget about that Dodger lineup. Considering it is very balanced, we saw some big stuff in the NLCS. Like, what would we think the strategy would be from Dave Roberts or stack his lineup to get the best chance against that Tampa Bay pitching staff? Well, this is where the three batter rule comes into play. You're not as worried about stacking, about splitting up your lefties because you know as the other batters got to figure out, okay, do I want to bring in the left-hander here? Especially against teams like the Dodgers, that has all of this flexibility. And all of these bats off the bench, Edwin Rios and Matt Beatty and guys like that, we'll see if Gavin Lux makes the roster. They just, there's so much depth. They're very hard to manage against. But, you know, obviously the core of that lineup is that great left-handed power. You look at Dellinger, you look at Corey Seager, who's played like an MVP candidate this postseason. You look at Max Mun- Max Muncy, and Jock Peterson gets a lot of playing time. I mentioned Rios, he's been playing more in the postseason. Uh, it, it's an incredibly difficult team to plan for. Um, and that's one of the, the, the kind of inside things I'm looking at in this series is does Cash stick with what's gotten him here? Does he try to play more matchup ball? Does he just work his lefties in in full, in full inning work? Um, are there going to be spots where Cash kind of traps himself in bad matchups that really haven't come up in the first three series? Yeah, definitely interesting to see. I think, the, obviously, the biggest player in this series to watch in terms of, like, a legacy point is Clayton Kershaw. is going to start game one tonight, and he's going to pitch again in game five the calendar holds. So, like, how big is it for Clayton Kershaw to put up a big performance this World Series, given his reputation for not being great in the postseason? Oh, I don't know. I think at this point, Clayton Kershaw could throw a perfect game and in the middle of the fifth inning announce that he has a cure for COVID, and people are still going to say that he doesn't perform in the postseason. I think the, the story now has exceeded any ability of the facts to catch up to it because Kershaw has had a number of excellent performances in the postseason. And when you actually go through it, a lot of the problem is Dave Roberts asking too much of Kershaw, whether it's going an extra inning or bringing him out of the bullpen or asking him to perform on short rest. And this has been a particular problem the last couple of years as Kershaw, you know, he's not the guy he was in 2014. And to some extent, he's being compared to that pitcher when for three or four years now, he's been on that next year down. You know, he's Greg Maddox in 1999 now, not Greg Maddox in 1993. So, um, again, I've been a defender of Kershaw, and I think that a granular look at his performance in the postseason will show that he's been a very good pitcher. Uh, and, yeah, he's had some bad outings. You think about the, the one that sticks out to me is uh, Game 5 in the 2017 World Series. But even now, do we not have to look at the 2017 World Series against the Astros in an entirely different light given what we know? So, you know, we'll see what happens. I think anything Kershaw can do to pitch well in October helps him with marginal fans, but there's a certain core baseball fan that is always going to look at Clayton Kershaw as a uh, choker. Yeah, I know Kershaw's got that reputation. And I do think the guy I'd be more concerned about right now is Kenley Jans, who did not look great at points in the NLCS. And Dave Rogers nearly stayed away from him in Game 7 and let Urias finish the game out. Do you think the Dodgers should be careful how they use Jansen in the series? Uh, I think the Dodgers are going to lose. And I said this going to the Braves series. I think it's going to be in the latest. It's going to be in a game where, you know, like Game 1 of the NLCS, where they're tied in the ninth, and he went to Trinan, and Trinan got lit up. Um, it doesn't seem to me – it's one thing to have a closer problem in June. You've got time to work through it, and if you lose a game, it's not a big deal, and you can experiment a little bit. It's very difficult to go into game one of the World Series, not entirely sure who's going to pitch the eighth and the ninth for you. And I don't mean that from a closes or everything standpoint. It's the uncertainty more than the pitchers. So 
know, if I'm Roberts, I love the way he finished up game seven of the NLCS. Julio arrived, he's a very good pitcher. He was on the mound, he was pitching well, he didn't have a large pitch count. He let him finish the game. If you remember that 2017 postseason, A.J. Hinch completely lost his bullpen. You go back to that Yankee series. And all of his relievers were getting battered from pillar to post. And what he basically did was say, I'm not going to use them. And he started using his uh, his middle guys. You look at Brad Peacock. You look at Lance McCullers coming out of the bullpen. Um, Charlie Morton in the World Series. He said, I'm going to use my best pitchers regardless of what their role is. Robert's use of a riot in Game 7 of the NLCS could be a foreshadowing of how he might use, say, Dustin May or Tony Gonsolin or any of the pitchers on his roster regardless of save situation, inning, or score. Yeah, that's true. And obviously the schedule change does help you, I think, a bit for that situation. Because obviously the first two rounds, we were going every day, that day's off, trying to get through the whole thing and make sure the postseason wrapped up for the election. And now we're back to the traditional 2-3-2 two, two with days off calendar. Does that benefit either team particularly more than the other? I would say probably the Dodgers, because they seem to, they seem to have fewer pitchers they trust right now. So, you know, when the Rays just feels like they can bring out a whole bunch of guys, and um, they're not going to run out of pitchers. I think the Dodgers, I look at a Victor Gonzalez, who's pretty much unknown. He's a rookie left-hander. has been great out of the bullpen. Um, they've kind of had to manage how they use him. Uh, they'll be a little more free to, to use their most effective pitchers, whether it's him, whether it's Gonsolin, whether it's Arrival, and not have to worry so much about is he going to be available tomorrow or the next day. Uh, the Rays have better depth, and that's one of the things that's helped them get to this point. Um, and the extra off days will probably help the Dodgers more than the Rays a little bit. Um, it's it's pretty close, but I think it's a small benefit to the Dodgers. Yeah, one thing I'd be concerned about as I'm a Rays fan is like this team does strike out a ton, and that's a narrative that doesn't seem to work too well. Like the later you get into the postseason, should would you be concerned about how much the Rays are striking out on offense? Because I know they are hitting a lot of home runs, but especially now you're going to this park where it's a lot harder to hit the ball out of the yard. I think the park is, is the X factor here. I mentioned earlier, you know, the ball just doesn't fly here. And these are two teams that are among the most uh, reliant in baseball on scoring on home runs. Uh, and we saw, you know, the Dodgers go through some stretches in the NLCS, but they just couldn't get anything going. Their offense, they're, you know, they had 256 this year, which was eighth in the National League. They led the league in home runs. They were fifth in the league in walks. That's how they score runs. They draw some walks, they hit some long balls. They raised similarly very reliant on the long ball. So, you know, it's one of the reasons I don't like this park for this postseason. I, I think that taking two teams that were relying on the long, long ball and throwing them into the cave is a little bit unfair. We basically picked Arlington because it was the, the park with the best weather setup, you know, the Dome Park, that the, the home team had no chance of being in the World Series. Like the reason we're not playing in Petco this week is because there was a chance that would be a home game for the Padres. The Rangers, there was no chance. So, that's kind of a thin thing to have, you know, be playing in this ballpark on. But I do think it's a factor of the series. And you mentioned the strikeouts. That doesn't worry me that much. Everybody strikes out. Um, it really just comes down to short sequence offense. Do you hit the home runs? Do you hit those home runs with a couple of guys on base? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I want to get some keys here. What do you think is the key to victory for the Dodgers in this series? Uh, yeah, I mentioned the walks. Uh, they're the Rays are very they're third best walk rate in baseball for their pitchers. Um, and the Dodgers, as I say, their offense is very reliant on drawing those walks. Can the Rays keep giving from giving the Dodgers those those free bases? You look in that bullpen, and there are some of the Rays relievers who are very willing to give up the walk. We saw that. The Rays gave up 21 walks to the Yankees in five games, 29 walks to the Astros in seven games. They will put some guys on base in that bullpen. 
Um, Blake Snell will put guys on base. It's something to watch in his first start as well. So can the Dodgers draw enough walks? I think is a, is a big key to this series. Right, what about the other way? What about the Rays? What's the key, what do they have to do right to win this series? They're going to give up home runs, keep runners off base. If they can keep the Dodgers hitting a bunch of solo shots, which is what they did to the Astros for most of that series. The Astros' offense is basically all solo shots for the first half of that series. And they have some long sequence runs. They have some home runs and runners on base later on. But, you know, they shut the Astros down, not by keeping them from hitting home runs, but by keeping them from hitting two run and three run home runs. So that's going to be a element. And also, too, continuing to play that defense. You know, that these are two very good defensive teams, but no team is as good as the Rays are. When they have Margot, Kiermaier, and Renfro in the outfield, that's the best defensive outfield in baseball. Willie Adamas doesn't get a whole lot of attention. It's just his third season, um, but he's a plus defensive shortstop. Uh, Joey Wendell, wherever he plays, the plus defender. It's just such a good defensive team. And as we saw during the, the NLC, ALCS, they position as strongly as any team in baseball. Remember, they Rays were an early adopter of shifting their guys around. And now they don't really look at positions. They just say, where's the ball being hit? Where's the ball most likely to be hit? And where can we put our guys to stop it? Yeah, it does make some sense. It'll be an interesting series for sure. If you had to make a pick right now, like who wins and how many games? It, it's kind of a coin flip for me. I'd probably go Dodgers to six, and that's as much because I thought all year the Dodgers were the best team, and I haven't seen anything to, to take me off of that. But I don't think there's a result here that would be a surprise short of like a sweep. If one of these teams were to sweep, it would be a pretty big surprise. Uh, but if I had to make a pick, I'm going to go Dodgers to six. Yeah, I took the Dodgers for the season as well. I do think this is going to be a very interesting World Series. I do, want to, I do want to touch on one question each for the two local New York teams because obviously they're entering very interesting offseason, starting with the Yankees, who did get to the ALDS, lost to the Rays in five. They have some questions with the pitching free agents. DJ LeMahieu, there's questions about cash flow. If you were running the Yankees, how would you approach this offseason? I'm probably the only guy in New York who doesn't want to sign DJ LeMahieu. It's obviously been great for two years. I just Second base, that size, um, if I can lock him up for maybe another two-year deal where I'm limiting my, limiting my exposure, uh, I wouldn't mind doing that. It's also the question of how much longer I want to keep playing Glaber Torres at, at shortstop and that great crop of shortstops that, that becomes free agent after next year. Would I rather stake second base for a year and then go out and sign Francisco Lindor and move Torres to shortstop, or would I rather sign a 32, 33-year-old Lemayhu um, and kind of block off that option for next year. So it's not just a one-year decision for me. I'm looking ahead to that shortstop crop in, uh, in 2021 and thinking about what I want to do then. Yeah, definitely interesting with them because obviously I think there's a little bit of an appeal with them of like, oh, like, should we change things up? We keep getting close. But there's also the argument with the Nationals, like, oh, like, just keep getting there enough times. You'll break through once and you'll win. That I think you've had that argument. I think they could lean more that way considering they might have ca- cash issues without considering they had no fans this year. It's very hard to convince Yankee fans that the postseason is, random's not the word, but it's not always just about how good you are. It's about how good you play over the course of a week. And to convince the fans that the other team gets paid too. Because the Yankees had that run from 96 to 2001 where they won what was the 13 of 14 postseason series. And we know now that that's just not going to happen. So the Giants eventually did it by making the playoffs every other year and won nine straight. But we know now that it's incredibly difficult to get through even one of these tournaments successfully. And to do it two, three, four times is just highly unusual. So the Yankees, to some extent, are a prisoner of that run they had from 96 to 2001 when this playoff format was new and we didn't get just how random it was going to be. 
Yeah, it's certainly true. I'll go to the other side town too with the Mets. Obviously, they're going to have a new owner being approved some point after the World Series. I know he said that they're going to bulk the analytics up, which they need. They're going to be smart with things. But you figure they're going to make at least one splash this winter. It's sort of like signal like, hey, this is not the Wilpon era anymore. If there was one guy that you feel like the Mets had to get of, of the, all the free agents, who would be the best fit for them? I'd probably go after JT Realito. Um, I worry about how, how well he's going to age, but it would be a massive upgrade over their current catching situation. It was Ramos. And I mean, at one point this year, they had to pull a kid up from double A to catch. And I know that was a, it was a weird season and a COVID thing, but um, adding Realito, I think would be the one guy they should get. Uh, I, it's a tough winter to spend. Um, talk about making a big splash, and certainly we expect Cohen to do that. But if I'm him, again, I keep my powder dry so I can go after Correa, Baez, Story, get one of those true superstar-type players a year from now. Do you think they could be aggressive on the trade market, maybe? Because there have been a lot of rumors flying around New York right now about them making a run at Lindor. Yeah, Mike, it's very hard for me to figure out right now what this winter looks like. You mentioned, you know, we played without fans this year. We played a 60-game season with no fans. 40% of baseball revenue evaporated. And I don't know what that picture looks like for next year. I'm telling you right now, I don't think we're going to be back to 70 million fans going to Major League Baseball games for some time to come. So the trade market depends on things like you know, how how willing is Dolan to you know lose a couple bucks next year. What are his attendance projections for next year? It's just so hard right now to figure out how much tolerance teams are going to have for spending money in 2021. And that, of course, affects the trade market. You know, Lindor would normally be somebody who would carry a pretty, a pretty significant price even for one year. But if Dolan cares more about getting the, what, what, probably an arbitration, $26, $27 million off the payroll, that's going to be a different price. Yeah, that's for sure. It's interesting offseason for sure. Joe, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I can people follow <clears> social <throat> media and keep up with some of the stuff you're up to, including the newsletter? Unfortunately, I'm on Twitter at Joe underscore Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N talk baseball on there and uh, pretty much <laughs> some other stuff occasionally um and you get information at the joe sheehan baseball newsletter at joe it's a subscription newsletter i've been doing it for about 10 years now you get subscription information read excerpts and some full pieces over at joe um and then if you're in the new york area just shout and i'm sure i'll be around all right joe thanks for all the time i really appreciate it thanks mike all right, and there you have it. That was Joe Sheehan talking World Series. Definitely a fun conversation. Looking forward to this series. It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. I remember I said preseason, I took the Dodgers over the Rays, so hopefully I get this. It's two years in a row I've called the World Series matchup. Hopefully this time I will get it. But up next, our two-minute drill. We're going to dive into the latest New York Jets disaster right after this. The two-minute drill. All right, we are back here. Two-minute drill. Talk about the New York Jets. The last winless team in football, 0-6, lose 24-0 to the Dolphins on Sunday as they continue to showcase how bad they are. This team is just something else because the other 31 teams look like they at least belong in the National Football League. The Jets don't. The Jets look like they should be playing in the XFL. They're just that bad. They have issues internally now. Last week, we had Greg Williams, defensive corner, passively, aggressively taking snipes at the offense. He was asked by the media, quote, I think Zach, friend of the podcast, Zach Brazil, actually asked this question about what's wrong with the defense, like, like and all this stuff in gate. And Greg Williams basically said that it's not all the defense. Read between the lines. It's not all on us. Taking shots at the offense. The defense has not been good. 
they got lit up by Ryan Fitzpatrick on Sunday for three touchdowns. This game could have been a lot worse. The Dolphins clearly took their foot off the gas, and they're up 21 nothing at the half. They win. They only scored three the rest of the game. The offense, though, something other kind of bad. The Jets, in the second and third quarters, gained two yards passing. Two. That's absurd. They saw Joe Flacco killed a few drives. He took a 28-yard sack on third down. An intentional grounding on third and short that led to a bot situation there. They didn't convert a third down until the fourth quarter. The offense literally was way too reliant on Frank Gore. Michael P. Ryan, who the whole point of cutting Le'Veon Bell was to getting him more playing time. He got one carry and one target in the second half. I'm sorry, Frank Gore is a valuable veteran. He's a good short yardage back. He's a good leader, but he's 37 years old. He's not part of the future of this team. Michael P. Ryan might be. You need to find out what he is, especially in a year when you're 0-6 and going clearly nowhere, but Adam Gates continues to pound Frank Gore like it's 2005. Brian Costello, friend of the podcast, pointed out on Twitter that the Jets ran 13 more plays than the Dolphins. They led the Dolphins in time of possession. They won the turnover battle, which, by the way, is the third week in a row the Jets have won the turnover battle. They are doing all these things, and they lost by 24 points. They lost by 24, winning a turnover battle and time of possession. How is that possible? Literally, that's the rest of you follow the win. The Jets are a bad team. And think about it this way. What exactly do they do well? They don't run the ball well. They don't pass the football well. They don't block well. They don't tackle well. They don't cover well. They don't do well on special teams. What is the one thing that to say, the Jets do this, and this is what the Jets are? You can't say the Jets are a power running team, or the Jets are a deep passing team, or the Jets are a team that harass you with its pass rush. They have no identity. They are a vanilla blah. And this goes back to this head coach who, no matter what the reason, he finds a reason to say it's not my fault. Whether it's the players aren't executing, we have injuries, you name it. There is always an excuse why it's not Adam Gase's fault. He's been asked repeatedly the last couple of weeks about giving up play calling. Last week, he kind of said, now nah, think about it. He's doubling down because he runs the exact same game plan every single week and nothing changes. Think about on Sunday with the Jets. We hear on the broadcast out of the gate that the announcers say, oh, Adam Gase said he wants to go vertical down the field to stretch the field out. The first drive, they take two deep shots with Rashad Perriman. Don't hit either. And they never throw deep again for the entire game. It makes no sense. At the end of the first half, they had a fourth and one deep in their own end with the clock running out. They ran the ball for Michael P. Ryan to get the first down. They basically got the sense that it was Adam Gase saying, look, I picked our first down. I gave a P. Ryan a carry. There we go. He does not get it. He is lost. This team is worse than the 96 Jets who went 1-15. That team had players. That team had Keyshawn Johnson. That team had Wayne Corbett. That team had a lot of the guys who ended up being at the 98 squad that ended up going 12-4 and and going to the AFC Championship game. Two years from now, how many of these guys are on the Jets? Seriously, how many? Kai Beckton will be here. Quentin Williams might be here. Apart from that, can you really think of anybody? 
This team has also started sell-off, which they had to do. Steve McClendon got traded after the game. He goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, pick up a 6 to 2022, give up a 7 to 2023. Basically, if you are not bolted to the floor, you could be on the block in two weeks. I think Marcus May could get dealt if they decide they don't want to re-sign him. They could deal Avery Williamson. Teams need tackling linebackers. They could deal anybody, pretty much, except for the draft picks from this year, Quinning Williams, Sam Darnold. I think anybody else could be available. Gase is a goner. We all know this. By the end of the year, he's going to be gone. Whereas after the season, and there is certainly an argument he made that, you know what, like, if you were at this point, you got to embrace the tank. Why not let him hang on here and just run it into the ground because this team's not going to win more than one game with him coaching? The prize could be there with Trevor Lawrence, who I think is the best quarterback prospect to come out of college football since Andrew Luck. And we heard back then about they suck for luck. Now the Jets are going to be unintentionally tanking for Trevor. The risk you run here, though, is do you come off so dysfunctional with Adam Gase? And Adam Gase has run guys out of town throughout his entire career, and they've all gone to be better without him. Look at Ryan Tannehill becoming one of the best quarterbacks in the league in Tennessee. Kenyon Drake, we just saw gashing the Cowboys left and right on Monday night. Devontae Parker, Mike Gusecki, Jarvis Landry, Robbie Anderson, top five in the NFL in receiving, now he's in Carolina out of the Jets. Kalakai Osemele, who looked like a machine that left guard for the Chiefs before he got hurt. The list goes on and on and on. The risk you run here with the Gase situation is, if they get so miserable, there's Trevor Lawrence sitting there and the Jets at number one saying, do I want to play for that co- that team? Should I just stay in college another year? Or worse, does he come out and say, I'm not playing for you. Trade me somewhere else. Does he pull an Elway? Is he pulling Eli Manning? The Jets need to, at some point, create a atmosphere that says, you know what, like, we will be a good place for a young quarterback to grow. Especially with as much leverage as Trevor Lawrence has. Because he can dangle the, the year over their heads. He can pull Peyton Manning and go back to school instead of going to the Jets. They need to get the right coach here. We know Adam Gase is not it. You need to put the man out of his misery and send him packing. I think the time to do is probably after the bye because the next three weeks they play Buffalo. They go to Kansas City. They're going to be underdogs like three touchdowns somehow not cover the number. And New England on a Monday night at home when Bill Belichick will love to run the score up and just continue to dunk on the Jets. Adam Gase is going to be fire at that point. They're going to be 0-9. And if you're not doing it now, I think get shut out by the Dolphins on the road. And you look at the three games the Jets played. These are games the Jets should have won if they were planning to do anything this year. They should have beaten the Broncos at home. They could have beaten Arizona because Arizona did not play great in that game. And they could have beaten the Dolphins because the Dolphins let up off the gas in this game. The Jets have enough to beat those three teams if they are playing a competent NFL coach. They don't have one. They're going to be really bad. Enough is enough here. At some point, I get that Christopher Johnson does not want to admit he made a mistake. I get that firing Gates is not going to do anything with this team. This team is so far gone. But at what point do you just look at this and say, we're getting embarrassed week after week after week. At what point do you have to say, I can't look at this anymore? I think you have to do it at the bye. If you don't do it at the bye, I think you do run the risk of Trevor Lawrence staring here and saying, boy, I want nothing to do with this organization. I'm going to stay in school or I'm going to force my way on the team. You can't have that. Enough's enough. Put the man out of his misery. Seriously. The Jet fans are becoming indifferent to this team because they know there's no shot here. And I get they're getting bailed out because there's no fans here and they won't be fans of games this year, but 
if you want to sell tickets next year, and you're going to have the opportunity to do it, because I'm assuming by then that things will be calmed down after the virus and the country will be vaccinated and they'll open the stadiums at full capacity. You want those fans to show up and give you their money. Don't act like an idiot. Don't assume that you are smarter than they are. They called from the beginning and said Adam Gates is a bad coach. You did not. The results speak for themselves. Move on here. With that, I'm going to end the show this week, the first half of it. I'm going to thank Joe Sheehan again for hopping on the line to talk about the World Series. If you want to work at stuff like this podcast, including my look at Le'Veon Bell's apart from the Jets and why the Jets' sinking ship does go as far as Christopher Johnson let it go, check out the blog over justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all episodes there. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips, on YouTube. You can find all the old episodes there, individual conversations. My conversation with Joe Sheehan will be going up on YouTube shortly. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings as well. They mean a lot to help make this podcast even better going forward and help us get in the ears of some new listeners, help continue the conversation. Speaking of that conversation, you can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up next on the podcast this week, we're going to do our Week 7 NFL Picks with Kevin Walsh of Sports Grid and Pop Call stuff of Sam DeRosa and more. Until then, hope you have a better week than Brace fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.